Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that is sick of hearing people complain about their poodles and pills. He is the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening, and thanks for telling a friend. Tonight, we are drinking Double Cross. Brewed in beautiful Bend, Oregon, garage grade four out of five bottle caps. This is a Belgian strong dark ale. I love a nice Belgian, and we want to cheers some of our friends for sending a little love and beer our way. First up, we have Julie in the Natty, Cincinnati, Ohio, and also in Cincy, we have Kate. A big shout out to Jennifer in Las Vegas, Nevada. We also have Jennifer in Glasgow, Scotland. And a big shout out to Stephanie from Williamsport, Ohio. And last but not least, Captain, we have Shauna in Nashville who says, we put the fun in dysfunctional. So Shauna thanks- or Shana? <laughs> Shauna. So thanks, everybody, for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to help us out with next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. Yeah, pull that phone out right now and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, at True Crime Garage. All right, friends, that's enough of the business. Gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Yesterday, Captain, we talked about the murder of Michael Frankie, who was killed January 1989 in front of the headquarters for the Oregon State Prison System, where he worked for the Department of Corrections. And we had an individual, this is a known criminal, Frank Gable, who would later be convicted of that. Now, remember, they were allowed to seek the death penalty in this case. However, they opted for life in prison without the possibility of parole. And what that tells me is maybe where the jury couldn't find it beyond, you know, that it was beyond a reasonable doubt. There was must have been some hint of doubt, right, to not kill the guy, to not sentence him to death uh, for this murder. Now, I want to touch upon the trial because what we would learn after the trial is that the prosecution relied on a handful of witnesses to convict Frank Gable. However, what we didn't know was that when these individuals were being questioned by police, Mm -hmm. these individuals, their stories changed repeatedly. And the prosecution did not allow that to come out in court. They did not... uh, Why would they? Right. They did not divulge the aspects of their different stories in court. Mm -hmm. So 
to kind of make it nice and clean and kind of give an example of what would be different from what ended up convicting this guy is that these stories, they say, for example, three of the witnesses who testified against Gable had earlier told police that other people, including Frank Gable, had talked of killing Michael Frankie in the months before the quote-unquote random car burglary. So that would tell a whole different story there. Then we have... Wait, I'm confused. They talked about them killing... No, Frankie. No, no, no. What they told police during the course of being questioned by the police is that other people that that there were other people not named Mm -hmm. in this statement, but also uh, Frank Gable, who was later convicted, that he and other people had talked about killing Michael Frankie months before he was actually killed months before the supposed random car burglary Mm -hmm. that the prosecution's theory was a random car burglary led to the death of Michael Frankie. To be clear, you're stating that these individuals along with Frank is saying we're going to kill him. They talked about they're going to kill him. Right. So these people that testified are stating that we heard all premeditated. It's not, has nothing to do with breaking into a car. We had we heard other people, including Frank Gable, claim that they someone was going to kill Michael Frankie months before it actually happened. Again, and like I stated yesterday, I thought the motive for Frank Gable to break into a car didn't make a lot of sense to me. Okay. Um, so then we have we we do have the people that did testify at court. Um, there's going to be doubts about their testimony because later they're going to recant their testimony. So we have Jody Swearingen. She later recanted her testimony Mm -hmm. instead claiming that another drug dealer, Timothy Natividad Mm -hmm. was the murderer. And then we have Cappy, AKA Shorty Harden and an affidavit executed in Iowa. Harden now swears Quote, I did not see Frank Gable stab Michael Frankie. Then we have Dan Walsh in a new affidavit. He says mm-hmm. his statement wasn't true, as did Kevin Walker. Then we have Michael Kearns later stated that he lied when he testified against Frank Gable. He said that he was seeking revenge against Gable for being a known prison informant. Then we have Janine Vera, who was Gable's wife and a new affidavit Vera reverses course. She said phone records refreshed her memory that Frank Gable, an associate of his had called their apartment roughly 90 minutes before the murder of Michael Frankie. She said that Frank Gable stayed home and talked to the man and was home until an hour or two after Michael Frankie was stabbed. And I guess that they're basing this time of when they believe Michael Frankie was stabbed off of so-called eyewitness statements. Okay, so that gives him an alibi, possibly. Yeah, but this is the same woman that says <laughs> the complete opposite uh, yeah. when it was when it was actually in court. So here's the problem. I don't know what to believe out of any of these characters. Mm-hmm. And like you said before, the circumstantial evidence in this case wasn't much. It wasn't like a mountain of evidence. Mm-hmm. Here's the other problem. Remember that we we said that there was no physical evidence presented against Frank Gable at the trial. Right. There was also never a murder weapon that was located and presented at the trial. Then we have... Well, there was one presented, but it was one that the cops bought. Well, yeah, they weren't claiming that was the murder weapon. They were claiming this to be of the same uh, model mm-hmm. as what we believe killed... Michael Frankie. Then we have Art Barger. He's an ex-FBI agent who led a Department of Corrections corruption probe. Agent Barger criticized the separate state police murder investigation of Michael Frankie. In a July 1990 interview, Barger, who has since passed away, considered it an open question whether Frankie's death was engineered by a drug ring conspiracy referring to evidence that Frankie may have been carrying evidence of prison corruption in a briefcase, adding, quote, 
Knowing whether or not Michael Frankie was carrying a briefcase when he was murdered is so essential to the investigation, said Barger. Quote, that I cannot believe the state police did not establish that fact one way or another at the outset. Okay, so let's think about what this individual is saying. Mm -hmm. He's saying that at no point in the investigation did anyone prove whether Michael Frankie was carrying his briefcase that day or not. There's rumors because he just got out of a meeting at 630 that he actually had these files with him. And then the other rumor was that after the murder, within hours, these files were shredded. Well, files from his office were rumored to have been shredded. Mm -hmm. So the thing here is what he's pointing out is the items that we do not have that Michael Frankie would have had um, at some point, whether it be in his office, in his car, on his person that are missing are, are his briefcase and his computer. All right. His laptop computer. Right. Okay. So these items are missing. The problem with that statement is, well, why are they missing? If the police and the investigators could not establish that he had those items with him at the time that he was attacked, that changes things a lot because of two things. We have an issue where he could have been just randomly attacked. Yeah. That somebody broke into his car. For some reason, these two encountered each other in the parking lot and Michael Frankie was stabbed. Oh, and then somebody within his own office goes, Oh, he's missing. Oh, uh, or he was found dead outside. Now's a good time for me to get rid of his briefcase and his laptop computer. Right. And it had nothing to do with the attack outside. Then there's the other situation, which is the reverse that the attacker may have attacked him with the purpose of not only killing him, but taking that briefcase, taking that laptop computer with them. Right. And then no evidence of the laptop or the briefcase is kind of evidence of that. Correct. So we have this, we have this ex FBI agent who brings up a very good question. It's essential to the investigation to know whether he had a briefcase or the laptop with him at the time he was killed. And they never established that they never cleared that up. And that is just murky waters right from the get go. And then we also have doubters that, that talked about more, a little bit more about Frank Gable. Okay. So Here's the thought that we need to keep in mind. What is being presented as in this case are two simple things. One, either Frank Gable did not kill Michael Frankie, or there's a chance that Frank Gable did kill Michael Frankie, but it was also a part of a larger conspiracy. Right. That maybe somebody paid him to kill Frankie. So you could have a conspiracy where people conspired to kill Michael Frankie and they hired somebody else or carried it out themselves, or they hired Frank Gable to do it for them. Well, I'm thinking about it this way. We know that Frank Gable is quote-unquote drug dealer, and so if there's this drug-running um, conspiracy and he's part of it, then the law anybody that's in law enforcement is going to go, hey, well, look, you're the, you're the fall guy. Mm-hmm. So if you don't take care of this, you're the fall guy. Mm-hmm. Well, he became the fall guy either way. Mm-hmm. And also to be clear, though, too, the, the problem with this case is where does the conspiracy stem from? Does it stem from somebody involved in the Oregon Department of Corrections that wants to cover some things up or a higher ranking government official that wants to cover up some misdealings? Or do you simply just have organized crime? You simply just have criminals who work together to conspire to kill Michael Frankie. Right. So people that point toward uh, or question Gable's guilt suggest these couple of items. They, they question why would Frank Gable break into a car parked in a well-lit patrolled lot and he did not take the car. He did not take Frankie's wallet or his watch. And then some question this. I found this statement to be interesting. One prison guard says, quote, Gable couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag. Could he have overpowered Frankie, who was physically fit, six foot three inches tall, 220 to 230 pounds? Right. Then And was one hell of a kicker. There you go. Then we have the polygraph issues that were presented at Frank Gable's appeal hearing. Mm -hmm. This contends 
Original incriminating testimony came from police tactics that included the relentless abuse of polygraph tests. We have an individual, David Raskin, a polygraph expert who examined records in the Gable case. And he said in an affidavit filed on Gable's behalf that witnesses were quote, intensely interrogated, pressured, coerced, and frightened by the angry and sometimes violent behavior of the interrogators. Mm Mm-hmm. He said he found serious misconduct in how police polygraph examiners tested those who subsequently pointed the finger at Gable, stating, quote, unethical and flawed polygraph testing procedures combined with improper interrogations appear to have provided the means to shape witness statements in order to obtain false testimony. He said witnesses were polygraphed repeatedly, sometimes on the same day. Jody yeah. Swearingen was given 23 polygraph tests in 12 sessions. Jesus. 23 polygraph tests. Witness we're gonna Walsh. To, we're going to make you take that again. Witness Walsh said in his affidavit that police, quote, yelled at me because the polygraph results showed I was lying. He says he, quote, eventually I told the police what I thought they wanted me to say that Mr. Gable confessed to me the details of the murder, Walsh said. Mr. Gable never confessed to me, end quote. All right, Captain, here's where we need to get into some of the different conspiracy theories out there regarding this murder of Michael Frankie. Because there's several different thoughts out there that have been presented over the years. Well, first of all, everybody put on your tin hats real quick, your little foil hats. Going into conspiracy land, right? Right. Um, Well, the first, obviously, being the hit. Um, The initial investigation of Frankie's death centered on parolees in the area and prisoners of the state in the state penitentiary who may have held a grudge of some sort against Michael Frankie. Mm -hmm. Then, about a month after the murder, rumors and reports began to surface about corruption within the Oregon Department of Corrections and the agency's possible link to Frankie's murder. Mm -hmm. Then, in September of 1989, Oregon Governor Goldschmidt announced he had appointed retired Judge John C. Warden to head an independent investigation of the Department of Corrections. Warden's investigation lasted three months. His findings, according to the final report, confirmed the existence of quote, significant illegal activities or other wrongdoings within the Department of Corrections. But he found no reasonable link between those activities and Michael Frankie's death. Former state treasurer Jim Hill does not accept the official verdict. Do you accept that? Do I accept what John C. Warden says? I mean, I have a real hard time with the idea or the notion that you're going to have this guy come in. And one of the things he's supposed to do is to clean up the system uh, that you find corruption within that system. And the person that was brought in to find that corruption and to stop that corruption is then murdered. Mm-hmm. I find that to, to, to have this notion that that corruption had nothing to do with this individual is it's, that's a weird statement to me. It's tough to de- tough to believe. It's hard pills to swallow, my friend. And I don't know what they're basing that off of. Um, but you know, they did do an extensive investigation. Now we do have former state treasurer Jim Hill, as I said, does not accept that official verdict, uh, believing either that Gable is altogether innocent of the crime, or that he or another perpetrator was a hired hitman rather than a chance car burglar. So this leads us to what are the other possibilities? There are several theories as to who may have been the killer or killers or who may have ordered a hit on Michael Frankie. The first that we need to talk about is an individual that we named earlier, and that is Timothy Natividad. So Timothy, AKA rooster Natividad was a drug dealer who himself was murdered two weeks after Michael Frankie was murdered. The court filing said that Greg Johnson, an associate of Natividad's, Mm -hmm. told a defense investigator that he spent time with Natividad around the time Michael Frankie was killed. 
According to the filing, Johnson said he dropped off Natividad at the Dome building. Remember, that's the building where Frankie worked on the evening of the murder and returned later and remembered Natividad saying, quote, it's not my blood when he got into the car. A few days later, he went with Natividad to get his payoff. Two men in a car, possibly with Oregon government license plates, pulled up and one of the men handed something to Natividad, which this gentleman would, well, gentleman, Johnson would later, in fact, figure out was $20,000 in cash. Johnson says that he recognized the two men as state prison officials. This is what he said in a court filing. So this is official documents that he put these statements into. Now, there are theories as to who may have been behind the killing, and the focus is on two men high in the corrections hierarchy. One individual who has been named is Hoyt Cup, the, f- the former warden of the Oregon State Penitentiary. In 2007, a convicted felon gave a series of interviews to a local newspaper mm-hmm. in which he claimed that he witnessed Cup and another unnamed corrections official pay Natividad $20,000 that Natividad later informed him it was a payment for killing Frankie cup died of cancer in 1990. Another individual who has been named is Scott McAllister. He was the assistant attorney general for the state of Oregon until he resigned shortly before Michael Frankie's death and no relation to Kevin McAllister subsequently became inspector general of the Utah corrections department. An ex-girlfriend of McAllister's told the Portland Tribune that McAllister had been in possession of internal police documents concerning the murder that he no longer had any official reason to possess and that she had overheard McAllister describe the killing as a botched hit. Listen to this. This is from a sworn statement made in 1990 by a former secretary and girlfriend of Scott McAllister. The woman's name is Linda Parker. In her statement, Parker says that in July of 1989, she was with McAllister at a party in Utah where she worked for him in his new job, Inspector General for the Utah Department of Corrections. At the party, McAllister was joined by Oregon friends who had followed him to work in the Utah prison system. Parker claims McAllister was trash-talking Michael Frankie and saying the people who had killed him were supposed to make it look like a suicide. Parker said, quote, Scott was clearly angry over the job being fucked up, as he put it, said mm. Parker, adding that she believed McAllister knew, quote, inside information about what happened in the Frankie murder. Should I keep going with this one, Captain? Because there's some stuff here between yeah, these two ex-lovers that, that, that's weird, mm. right? Okay. So in an interview, McAllister called Parker a quote documented liar and said there is no truth to her statement. Adding the whole suggestion is absurd. He said, Michael Frankie was a friend of mine. Parker's ex-husband, this is Jim Dreetzler also questioned Parker's credibility, citing mental issues. Parker had attempted suicide in late 1989 and was hospitalized and diagnosed with major depression. Parker's statement that has nothing to do with whether or not you're telling the truth. That's correct. Parker's statement makes other allegations about McAllister that have been substantiated elsewhere. For instance, Parker accused McAllister of using his position to pressure her into group sex and having her, he was giving her kitty porn videos to quote, train her. The two videotapes mm-hmm. she turned over were traced by law enforcement to McAllister, causing him to be charged with a child pornography felony charge. Ultimately, he pled guilty to a misdemeanor. In addition, a second Utah corrections employee came forward saying McAllister also tried to pressure her into group sex, causing McAllister to be forced out of his Utah job. Okay, so we have an ex-girlfriend of this McAllister who's an ex-official in the Oregon State uh, hierarchy. Right. However, we do need to keep in mind McAllister did resign from that position before Frankie 
was murdered. I cannot trace back or figure out when McAllister moved from Oregon to Utah, but that doesn't mean that he couldn't have had a hand in the conspiracy to kill this guy even after the fact. Yeah, but all you have to do is follow the kiddie porn and you can figure that out. So then we have Wayne Holm, um, who was later killed by a sheriff's deputy during a reverse sting drug operation. Holm was a former inmate in the Oregon correction system during the early 1980s. He assisted numerous other inmates with parole hearing presentations and had known Scott McAllister because McAllister represented the parole and probation board during those hearings. Holm had offered the theory that the primary motivation for Michael Frankie's murder was that Frankie discovered a plot by Scott McAllister to sell paroles to inmates. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. 
Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer. Thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like calorie smart protein plus and keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Cheers, mates. Cheers to you, Captain. And make sure you check out our other show, Off the Record, on Stitcher Premium. That's right. Uh, let's talk about the man in the pinstripe suit theory, also known as the abduction theory. The abduction theory is that Michael Frankie was at some point later brought back to the scene and perhaps he was going to his office to find whatever paperwork or computer files uh, may have been in his office. Once there, he gets out of the car. Perhaps he sees his only chance for getting away, tries to make a break for it, and perhaps receives one or more of his wounds at that time, goes to the North Porch where he is finished off. Now, much speculation has centered on a mysterious man in a pinstriped suit, an unknown individual who was spotted by a corrections employee inside the corrections dome building 90 minutes after closing time. The individual has never been identified. Another dome building employee who worked as a parole board clerk, has stated the man in the pinstriped suit also matches the description she gave to police as the man who arrived at the dome building the day of the murder to repair the copy machine late in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. This individual was granted access to remain in the building after hours to complete the repairs. The repairs were never completed. The machine was left in pieces. And neither the man in the pinstriped suit or Dennis Plant, uh, the man who later testified that he was the copy machine repairman, but whom the parole board clerk states was not the man who worked on the copier that day, returned to complete the repairs. Nor was any record of the service call found in the copier repair log after the murder. Whether or not the individual has any relation to the killing is unknown. The individual does not resemble that of Frank Gable. Some believe that Michael was the victim of a premeditated murder carried out by several men and possibly instigated by high-ranking officials fearful of being named in the investigation. According to reporter Stephen Jackson, an eyewitness at the scene backs up this theory, stating that at 10.15 or 10.20 on January 17th, a young man riding in a car looked over where the scene of the crime was and saw five to six men running toward a Volkswagen van. If Michael Frankie had been abducted and then brought back to the building where he was killed, this would fit in with the abduction theory. 
This theory suggests that on the night of his death, Michael unlocked his, his own car and deactivated the alarm at the same time the men approached him. Michael did not keep regular office hours except for Tuesday staff meetings. So it appeared the attackers were familiar with his schedule. That night, several people reported seeing a man with a pinstripe suit and a dark complexion lurking in the corrections building after hours. A composite drawing based on a witness description was made. And this theory also makes sense, too, because we don't see Frankie. We lose track of Frankie between 630 and 1230. Yeah, we have almost six hours where he's unaccounted for. Now, we can't say for certain that the area in which he was later found dead was searched before 1230. But what we can say is people were looking for him and did not discover him until that time. Now, here's a theory that I really like, and I'm not saying that I favor this one over the others, but the reason why I like it is because it kind of ties some of the other thoughts and theories together. You know, you say, well, how can you have these theories that don't seem to have anything to do with one another? This one is interesting, and this is the theory of Kevin Frankie. Kevin is Michael Frankie's younger brother, and he assisted with that movie uh, without evidence. So his theory goes something like this, that he depicts Scott McAllister, who we already talked about, as a corrupt bureaucrat who was cozy with inmates and benefited from some kind of black market prison trade. And Michael Frankie threatened to halt Scott McAllister's dealings. So then McAllister turned to underworld associates, including Timothy Natividad. The murder plot, Frankie maintains, called for Natividad and two other men to force Michael Frankie into his car and drive off, Mm -hmm. kill him somewhere else and make it look like a suicide. But something went wrong and Frankie fought back and Natividad ended up killing him there on the scene, or at least stabbing him there on the scene. I like that theory because it actually ties like three of the theories together mm-hmm. and might be why that there's rumors of theory A being right, theory B being right, or theory C being right. So within that one, we have Scott McAllister, who is thought to be corrupt and be up to no good, who, who does already make deals with known criminals and inmates. Mm-hmm. Then turning to Timothy Natividad, who's a known criminal, and other individuals to get rid of Michael Frankie. Now, while we are on the subject of Kevin Frankie, Michael Frankie's younger brother, let's get into this a little bit because you know how we often find these almost unbelievable smaller stories inside some of these cases? Mm-hmm. Well, here's a weird one. So we have Kevin Frankie. But we have Kevin Frankie's wife. His wife later is Elizabeth, who was formerly Elizabeth Goodlove, who at one time, at the actually at the time of Michael Frankie's murder, mm-hmm. was Timothy Natividad's girlfriend. Elizabeth Godlove shot and killed Timothy Natividad two weeks after Michael Frankie's death. A jury acquitted her that spring after she claimed Natividad had been abusing her for years and had held a gun to her head the day that she killed him. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Godlove and Kevin Frankie married in 1994. So is it possible that during her trial that he follows her trial, they might have even met at the courthouse? Yeah, I, I don't because, know. Because they thought that you know his death might have something to do with his brother's death. Well, l- let's look at her story just a little bit more uh, in detail. So... In August of 1990, Elizabeth Godlove told Frank Gable's defense team that Timothy Natividad came home in a panic during the early morning hours, quote, on or about the night of Michael Frankie's murder. Mm -hmm. She noticed a wound on his leg and a gash on his head. Then a day or two later, Timothy Natividad told her he'd killed a man. But when Godlove relayed the story to the police in September of 1990, she said she couldn't be certain the night Natividad arrived home with the wounds was the same night that Michael Frankie was stabbed. Police ran down leads on Timothy Natividad, testing his knives and clothing, but they found no link to the murder. Mm -hmm. 
So then you could take it as possible one or another motive for Timothy Natividad to kill Michael Frankie. Either he was involved in a conspiracy to get rid of him and he was hired as remember, we have that other individual that said he was with Natividad for portions of the night that Michael Frankie was killed and picked him up at the scene mm-hmm. and he had blood on him. Or did Natividad simply, was he part of the criminal element that was peddling drugs in and out of the prison system, right? And that he needed to off the guy that was going to, that stumbled upon how the workings of that were taking place and intended to shut it down. Right. But that's all connected to higher individuals in the prison system anyways. Yes, very possibly, but not 100% that it has to be. Well, I just think it could be a, it could be a combination of a lot of these things. And it seems like there's a lot of money to go around and probably a lot of greed. Well, there's definitely corruption and here's the reason why when when you and I spoke earlier about um, the judge's ruling stating that, hey, I found corruption within the prison system, but I found no link between that and the murder of Michael Frankie. Mm-hmm. And you said, hey, I disagree with that statement because if there was corruption, this guy was sent to find it. It's very likely that that led to his murder. Well, on top of that, we have files of his missing. I mean, that's, again, evidence of that possibly he found those, corruption and now we don't have evidence of that those are rumors though that's what we got to be clear of rumors that files of his were missing well right but we know that his computer's missing correct so, we do know that so if somebody's saying hey frankie's laptop is missing possibly there's files missing and then on top of that there i mean there was some activity in his office right of of things going missing so Well, no, the, the items in his office would just simply be rumor. Unless somebody could prove that his briefcase and laptop were in his office at the time that he was killed elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, look, he, there's rumor that he stumbled upon corruption. And the thought is that, well, he would have had proof of such. And if he did, then they might have been in files or in his briefcase or in on his laptop. Right. And therefore, if it was a conspiracy to uh, buy the the corrupted to shut this man down, that they would have wanted to steal those files, steal that laptop, steal that briefcase. Mm-hmm. What I'm getting at is I agree with you. I, I think it's fair to make that leap if there is corruption, if you do find corruption, to think that it could have led to Michael Frankie's murder. Right. But where I can't say that for certain with 100% certainty is this. I personally believe that there is some level of corruption in every state's prison system within the United States. Oh, that's a scary thought. Don't even get me started on it. Well, I mean, there just is. I mean, I, I, I would be, I would be shocked if anybody working in any of those states corrections, uh, systems, if anybody Mm. would come forward and say, Nick, you're absolutely wrong. There is zero corruption at all in our prison system here in the state of Kentucky, in Ohio, in Michigan, New York, California, Texas, whatever. And what do you think it's like, you know, when when you now have privately owned prisons? So Well, it but that, I want to be it's gonna just get worse. I want to be clear here. I, I'm not trying to point out that I think that every state's prison system is corrupt from the top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Corruption can be as something as simple as a guard selling cigarettes to inmates. I mean, that's, that's the absolute truth of it. So what I'm saying is I can see how they could find certain levels of corruption in their prison system, but also believe that it did not lead to his murder. You see what I'm saying? Oh, I see it. So the thing too, regarding the files though, those files are only rumored to have been destroyed. And what I mean by that is let's say Frankie actually didn't discover any corruption. Then he would have those files would never have existed. Right. The other thing too is the briefcase and the laptop if they were on his person when he was stabbed, maybe it was just taken by whoever stabbed him and that person wasn't there to stab him because they were hired to kill him. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I or or the opposite though too. I mean there could have just been rumors Again, we have these rumors about these files. We have these rumors about this laptop. So if you do have high levels of corruption, they go, hey, we got to take down this guy. 
Frankie. Well, what if they take him out and then they go, he didn't have anything on us. We didn't right. have anything on our corruption yet. We didn't have detailed you know, reports. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there was a confession. Um, and this was by a guy named John Krause. He's a man from Salem who mm-hmm. was on parole for a robbery. He was on parole at the time of Michael Frankie's murder. He later repeatedly confessed to murdering Michael Frankie telling numerous law enforcement officers as well as his own mother, brother, and girlfriend that he stabbed Michael Frankie when Michael caught him burglarizing his car on January 17th, 1989. Mm, So the the other Frank was just a patsy. So Frank Gable, yeah, the convicted murderer of Michael Frankie, his Mm. defense team said that John Krause's confession was consistent with the crime scene and the autopsy evidence corroborated by eyewitness testimony and considered truthful by an FBI polygrapher who was flown in from out of state to test him. So Kraus called it quote, just a freak accident saying he got into Frankie's car and Frankie found him in it and asked him what he was doing. He says, I tried to hit him where I could knock him out. Mm -hmm. The next thing I know, I stabbed the guy. I stabbed him in the heart, in the arm And he says, I didn't intend to kill the guy. Krauss described how Frankie confronted him, offering a physical description of Frankie, who in the autopsy was described as six foot three, weighing between 220 to 230 pounds. Krauss said that Frankie punched him with significant force, and that is when Krauss stabbed Frankie. Mm -hmm. Now, there, of course, are doubts about this confession. We have attorney Nicholas Kallstrom from the Oregon Department of Justice countered that Krause's confession came after he provided police with at least four differing accounts of what had occurred. He gave varied descriptions of the clothing he wore at the scene, as well as the route he took to flee the area. Kallstrom suggested that during the interviews Krause had with police, that the investigators may have fed him information along the way. The state could never corroborate Krause's account of what occurred, according to this uh, Kolstrom individual. You're right, right, right. But you can you can feed him all the information you want. You can feed him all the evidence you want, all the crime scene information you want. Now you got to pass a polygraph, and that, that's not to say that they can't pay that guy off or whatever. But you still got to pass a polygraph. Well, what's interesting here, though, is that we have assistant federal public defender. Uh, for Frank Gable, who later called it a troubling double standard, stating if the state is now arguing that John Krause's confession may have been contaminated by investigators, questions, or media accounts of what occurred, but hasn't applied that same standard to other key witnesses who have since recanted their earlier statements that place Gable at the scene of the crime. Mm -hmm. Not other key witnesses. Every key witness. Right. <laughs> you know, come on. Yeah. And I think that's very interesting here, right? Mm-hmm. So we have this guy who confesses and they say, nope, the, the police, un, you know, unintentionally altered this guy's statement. Well, and here, here's the thing. Is I don't really give a shit that he is confessing to the cops, right? It's more the fact that, one, you're passing a polygraph. But, two, you're confessing to your mother and your brother and your family. It sounds like just about anybody that was willing to listen, he was confessing to. Right, but what I what I mean by that is, I'm going to put more weight into that. Why Why are you go, Why would you add heartache to your mother mm-hmm. for a lie? Mm-hmm. Mom, I did this. I want to come clean. I want to, you know. And that's what it exactly sounds like, doesn't it, Captain? It sounds like this individual that that kind of panicked in the freak moment. If we believe a story, he got punched by this. Large man, and he kind of would punch you. Yeah, it, there, that's what everybody says about Michael Frankie. This is the kind of dude he didn't back down from just right. about anything. Well, and Frankie just didn't know that he was bringing his fisticuffs to a knife fight. Right, and it sounds like if John Krause is telling the truth, that his intentions weren't to kill Frankie. It sounds like, oh, he hit me real hard. I can't throw blow. I can't trade blows with this guy. Right. I'm going to, I'm just going to have to, 
get him real quick and go and and <laughs> and maybe he just intended to get him in the arm or in the hand or something like mm-hmm. that and and unfortunately got him r- directly in the heart. Well, and as far as Frank Gable is concerned, it it seems like all these other theories and then plus this confession, which basically is what they're claiming Frank Gable did. Mm-hmm. They're basically saying, well, but you're just changing the characters with this confession. And again, by the way, passes a polygraph and the guy sits in jail. Well, and you wonder too, if there's no physical evidence to convict Frank Gable, then why maybe there isn't any physical evidence because he's not your guy. And like you said, the the story that John Krause lays out for you is the same theory that the prosecutors put forth at trial. Right. It's just the difference is you have one guy who's saying, this is what I did. I mm-hmm. did I did exactly what the prosecution said, and my name is John Krause. And then you have another guy who's saying, man, I'm completely innocent. Don't stop looking for the killer because he's actually out there, and my name is Frank Gable. So we should mention the Innocence Project has taken on Frank Gable's case uh, and looked at this thing several times in attempts to get him pleas, you know, or not pleas, appeals mm-hmm. uh, granted for his conviction. So, you know, us presenting these conspiracy theories, um, it's not a lot of ooky kooky dookie. You know, it's it's um, say what people smarter than us have looked at Frank Gable's case and questioned mm-hmm. his guilt and questioned the verdict of such. Yeah. So kooky dookie. That's right. That means it. It means it's poopy. It um, means it's ooky poopy doopy. Means it's poopy. So the problem with this case, Captain, and I think it's extremely obvious to everyone, is that this case is complicated. I mean, we have Michael Frankie, who was brought in to end corruption in the Oregon prison system. Michael Frankie discovers or may have discovered deep corruption very high up in the prison system chain Mm -hmm. of command. And then he's murdered prior to the release of the details of his findings. Right. His briefcase and possibly other paperwork disappear and are never found. Now, the interesting thing to me, though, is that we three months later, three months after the murder is when John Krause confesses to his family that he killed Michael Frankie in a botched robbery. Then we have police who later ignore this confession. The investigation takes 15 months and they arrest Frank Gable. No physical evidence ever links Gable to the crime. Gable is sentenced, but very few people believe he is in fact guilty. All of the people who testified against Gable recanted their testimony. So I ask you, Captain, as we take a look at these theories that we've discussed today, how do you feel on some thir- certain things? How do you feel about Frank Gable? Do you think that he's guilty or... Make him take a lie detector. Do you think that... If I was going to represent him as the innocent project is putting time and effort into him, I'd make him take a lie detector. If he can pass that, then okay, well, we can start there. Do you think that there was a hit taken out on Michael Frankie? No, I mean... I think they're, I don't know. I mean, it's like I said, the three months after the murder, you have somebody confessing, you have somebody confessing to their family. The police don't take that serious because they got their guy. Again, they're the state's case. And what the evidence kind of shows us is that it's more likely a botch robbery. Mm-hmm. And then Krause's story lines up. So why wouldn't you believe him? Yeah. It, especially he passes the test. That does not mean there wasn't corruption. There doesn't that doesn't mean that Frankie wasn't going to find it and he might have and 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 probably his murder scared a lot of people to death. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're you're probably right. Even if the murderer didn't know about Michael Frankie's job or who Michael Frankie was or what he could have stumbled upon or found what he was looking for, I guess we should say. So, I'm with you. Um, as far as Frank Gable goes, I think, unfortunately, it's it's not very probable that he was the killer. And just because of the zero evidence factor, because of all of the witnesses recanting their st- stories, mm-hmm. um, then we also have the added element of the 
interrogation process and the polygraph process for all of those, most of those witnesses seems to be not normal, irregular, right. coerced. And the, and the, the difficult thing is that, you know, Frankie was high up in the prison system. And so that put pressure on the police to solve it. But also, again, with the corruption, if there's higher levels of corruption, those people are connected to people on the law enforcement, and they're going, solve this thing, get this closed, get the heat off of us. It was a robbery. That's it, right? Mm. So I think partly because of the corruption is why we have this innocent man behind bars. As far as the hit theory goes or the different hit theories that are out there, I also question this thought because here, my thought is usually this when there is a hit put out and when the hit is carried out, usually the target is, is killed and Mm -hmm. the offender knows that the target is dead when they leave the area. And what I mean by that is most of the evidence and most of what the medical examiner as well as other investigators in this case have stated is they believe that Michael Frankie was attacked near his vehicle and then was able to, to flee right. and attempt to get help mm-hmm. where he would have survived and been able to tell us what happened to him, who attacked him. And that doesn't work out very well for a hit. Doesn't sound like a hit. And then also the, you know, the rumors were that we need to make it look like a suicide. If that's the case, the hit didn't even try to make it look like a suicide. And then even when on the abduction theory, same thing. Let's make it look like a suicide. You're going to tell me that you're going to take this person in a van. We're talking a 6'3", 225 pounds, 235 pounds. You're going to take him in a van with three guys. And then when you, when you bring him back, he's still going to move around alive. I mean, because... Mm-hmm. The evidence seems like he moved from his car to the second floor. If that's the case, then you you brought him back somewhat alive. Right. And, and that, that makes no sense. So, I mean, if you're going to abduct somebody for the purpose of shutting them up for good, mm. you're going to shut them up for good. The only thing that stops me from ruling out the possibility of a hit 100% is the fact that we have the situation with Scott McAllister and Linda Parker, where she states that she overheard McAllister basically telling a bunch of guys that the it was a hit. However, the people that were hired to carry it out really screwed it up. You know, unless this was a hit that was really screwed up. Yeah, but hear, hear me out. It is possible. Like I said, there's possible that all these things are happening at the same time. And you have a hit that's going out, but you don't know when that hit is going to happen, right? You don't know if it's that day or whatever. And so it could have simply been um, talked about on these high-level people, Mm -hmm. the high-level people that are in the prison system working with the criminals saying, hey, you need to take care of this. These criminals are drug dealers or whatever. They're not in the business of putting in hits. And so this this car break-in happens. Mm Mm-hmm. And then McAllister calls his guys, hey, what happened? They go, well, he he got away. And they had nothing to do with it. You see what I'm saying? They're covering their ass. Well, the interesting thing is we have, and I, wow, you just stumbled upon something here, Captain, because we have Michael Frankie, who's last seen alive about 6.30 p.m. on the 17th. Mm -hmm. The newspapers on the 18th said Frankie McAllister, sorry, Michael Frankie has been murdered. The newspapers the very next day say Michael Frankie was murdered. Right. So guess what? If you're somebody that ordered that hit and then you make a phone call, you go, well, I guess the deed is done. Mm -hmm. Question mark. Right. Like I hired you to kill this guy and now I'm reading the newspaper and he's dead. Mm -hmm. And the the medical examiner saying it was 100% a homicide. That's interesting. Could somebody have paid Scott McAllister or some of his group? paid Timothy Natividad and a guy or two to kill Michael Frankie or a guy and a girl and John Krause for some reason shows up breaks into Michael Frankie's car on the 17th 
stabs him, accidentally, unintentionally kills Michael Frankie. And Timothy Natividad says, your deed was carried out, my friend. Thanks for the money. I'll meet you here on Tuesday for the payoff. All right, Captain, how about a little recommended reading? Yes, sir. This week we are recommending Love and Greed in the Heartland, the Richmond Hill Murders. This is the story of an insurance fraud scheme gone fatally wrong. On an autumn night in Richmond Hill, what was meant to be a small fire mushroomed into a major explosion in the largest homicide investigation in Indiana's history. Make sure you check out Love and Greed in the Heartland, by Robert Snow and Russ McQuaid. And you don't have to write that title down now. You can simply go to our website, truecrimegarage.com, and click on the recommended page, and we have all of our books recommended there for you. Yeah, and make sure you check out our store page as well. We have a bunch of different shirts. We also have a tumbler mug, koozies, all that stuff. Uh, we ship them out every Friday. And if you have any merchandise ideas that you'd like to see in the store, you can always email me at captain at truecrimegarage.com. Until next week, everybody keep it real, keep it clean, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 